Welcome to another episode of Capoeira in Canada. Tonight we have Professor Soketch of Grupo Kadara, or Kadara, I believe is the more appropriate way of saying it. Correct me if I'm wrong. And um, yeah, let's get started. So, Professor Soketch, thank you so much for your time. I know with uh, everything going on, we're all trying to keep busy. Everybody's running online classes, and you've just jumped off an online class to uh, and back online with me. So thank you very much. Um, you know, I know it's getting late in the evening. and uh, But we're here to talk about you. And what we'd like to know is, how did Soketch discover Capoeira? When did, you know, when did it happen? And uh, tell us your story. Great. Okay. Well, uh, first of all, thanks for allowing me to uh, to share my perspective and my my story. Uh, I like the whole concept of what you're doing. It's really good. Um, so I've been what I guess you could call a lifelong martial artist. So like my martial art journey started back in 1986. When I was like 11. And I was doing uh, a Zendu Kai karate, which was like a goju based karate with uh, a lot of freestyle kickboxing in the way they did their sparring and, and, and combative training. Uh, in 1989 till 1982, uh, the, the karate school had moved away. I was training in a, in a place that was like a church hall that was like five houses down from where I grew up. Um, and then they eventually moved away. And a couple of months later, this uh, Taekwondo school came in. And to me, it was all just the same kind of martial art. And I remember I was like 14. And I, I sat in to watch a class just on my own because I, I saw people in uniforms and walked down the street um, to take a look. And I sat there as a, as a cocky young kid and I watched like the first half of the class. And then there, uh, well, there was a moment where the kids were being taught like uh, the Taekwondo version of Amatelo Cruzado. Mm. Sitting there and I'm like, oh, I can do that. I'm pretty sure I can do that. And I must have had a bit of a, a cocky smirk on my face. And, uh, and the instructor looked at me and they were like, you think you can do that? And I was like, yeah, sure. And I got up and did like three in a row, boom, boom, boom. And they were like, okay, so now you're gonna stay and do the rest of the class. Um, and so I, and they, she basically, it was a female instructor and, and she put me through the paces. Like she put the whole class through the paces. So I think she was looking for my quit. Ah, uh, yes. But I, I didn't seem to have a quit. I was just, what can I do, what can I do? Um, I grew up in a, a pretty poor, family, one of five kids in, uh, in Brisbane, in Australia, living like a single parent with uh, my mom, like on welfare most of the time. So uh, the martial art, the karate was like the one thing that I had that made me feel like I was me, that made me feel whole. So um, when the first karate school moved away, I was devastated and, and I didn't have an outlet um, for my individuality. And then this Taekwondo school, this lady, um, she put me through my paces and I remember uh, one of the parents of one of the other kids at the end of the class she was like mm, he's good you should keep him and then she came and chatted to me and I was like look I can't really afford to to train because you know we have this situation and she's like I don't care I just want you to come nice and I was like okay. right that, that's mentorship that's that's uh, an influential human being that that wants to make a difference absolutely to me, that's yeah a huge Factor and like it, it's uh, it's something that that still resonates with me today. 
Um, and I trained with her uh, until 1992. The irony was that the karate school, I got to like a brown belt with a black tip. And then the school moved away before I got a chance to hit that black belt. Mm. I was like, yeah, it can be heartbreaking because <laughs> you're like, yeah, yeah I'm right there. <laughs> because we all have goals, right? Of course. Uh, and, and as people who live in the Western world, we kind of want things a little bit more now and we work towards things. And I missed out on that. And then she's in Taekwondo. It wasn't like one of those like WTF, everyone wears pads and you bounce around kind of Taekwondos. It was very like Taekwondo was originally based on uh, like a combination of Kwarango and um, Shotokan karate. Mm -hmm. So this style of Taekwondo was leaning more towards the Shotokan style. Um, and I trained with them until 1992. And then um, I had the opportunity to join the Australian Navy and become uh, part of the military in Australia. Uh, and the acceptance date for me to start recruit school was literally like three weeks before I was supposed to have my black belt grading for the Taekwondo school. So I took that opportunity and, and missed the other. Mm -hmm. uh, I, so I, then I went and served in the Navy for a few years and I started boxing, did a lot of boxing when I was in the Navy. Actually, I boxed in high school as well in a school sport. So I was really just a huge fan of martial arts. <laughs> um, and in 94, I, I got out of the Navy. And between 1994 and 96, I, I kind of did a little bit of partying because, you know, you're in your early 20s. Um, <laughs> I was... I was uh, I was really into kickboxing. I did a lot of kickboxing. Um, and then in 1996, I saw the movie Only the Strong. I still vividly remember seeing it on the shelf in the video store, VHS. And I was like, hmm, this looks interesting. And I went home and watched it. And uh, it changed my life. But 1996, as everyone else who says um, that this was an influential factor in their reasons for starting, there was no internet. We had yellow pages so finding a school took about three or four months of me spreading the word out to everybody i knew that trained in some kind of martial art or some kind of athletic endeavor and i was like if you ever see this let me know because i want to i want to train it and then one day uh at work i was sitting in the lunchroom having a cup of coffee and a guy slaps a fly down the table he's like is this what you're looking for and it's a picture of this dude on one hand holding his leg and what we all know now was Alba Cheeto or yeah. Floor. Yeah. And he was in front of the Sydney Opera House. So it was beautiful. Uh, and he was wearing like these three quarter short pants with the candy striped look, very like Bahian Capoeira. Yeah. And I was like, yes, absolutely, that's it. And I was at class that night. I had a class that day. I rang the guy. I was like, man, I, I got to come in and train. Having had so much previous martial art experience, the kicks and all that kind of stuff was relatively easy to understand. Mm. And then we start doing this negativas and Holes across the room, and I'm getting dizzy. And I'm like, "What is this? Why?" And I knew I had the context of the movie, but my martial context was kind of struggling to really understand it. And it was it was a challenge for me to get a lot of that element of the movement. Um, and then learning the music and learning to sing. And and, and uh, my first teacher was really really highly skilled in acrobatics, in music, in culture. But he kind of lacked some of the martial expertise that these days um, a lot of capoeiristas are accustomed to receiving. Uh, so I trained with that teacher until from February 97. So again, like yesterday, I made a post because it was the 24th of February. Right. Yeah. Congratulations, yeah, by the way. <laughs> Thank you. 
to start, I keep saying, um, yesterday was 24 years, uh, this month is 24 years training Capoeira, so I started February 97, and then uh, I had an opportunity because of the skills that I learned through Capoeira to get a job working at one of the major theme parks in Sydney, um, doing like stunt choreography and stunt fighting and action scenes and also working in like street theatre and, and developing those kind of skills. But it was purely because of the skills and the confidence that I gained in Capoeira and the experiences that I had with performing and doing shows and, and um, just the way that the community can build you up as a human being. Because before then I had a lot of like angst and issues and, and struggles. Um, so I, I started working in these theme parks, doing doing stunt shows. And then in 2000, uh, I had taken a couple of months where I, I didn't have a time opportunity to train Capoeira. And then one of my buddies came over to visit me at the theme park. And he's like, dude, there's this new mastery in town. You got to check him out. And I'm like, <laughs> okay. okay. And so he had come to do shows. Um, which is basically the diaspora of, of Capoeira, especially from like the 80s, 90s, and 2000s, even in the 70s in Europe. The diaspora of Capoeira came through shows and performance and, and folklore productions of Brazilian culture. So he, he had an opportunity to come and do shows. So he was like, all right, well, I'll, I'll do some shows here. He'd done some other traveling. He was trying to save money to, to build his academy um, back in Rio. So, so while he was there, he decided to teach for my original teacher, um, just you know, to make a little bit of extra coin. Yep. And uh, I went to do a class with him, or I just went to see him. And the same kind of thing happened that happened with this Taekwondo school. He's like, uh, what are you here for? And I was like, oh, I used to train. You know, I've had a couple of months off, but, um, but I really love Capoeira. But I, I don't have any money to pay for class. I just, I'm just going to sit and watch. And he's like, tell me, do you love Capoeira? I'm like, oh, man so good and he's like i don't care just do the class he's like just train just have fun yeah and we'll see how we go. so i i joined the class and trained and and from the moment i finished the class it was like a revelation it was like my first teacher was uh teaching with the the skills and understanding of teaching and the martial side of like a elementary school teacher mm. and i just met a university professor who was giving me evolution and details that I felt were lacking in the first school. So even um, when you spoke to Pirata, he said the same thing. When Mr. Um, Pinillo came along, there was a lot of shifts in the details and the evolution of the art and the understanding of the martial side of the art um, and the details. So um, when I met Mr. Cicatriz, straight away I was like, wow. And <laughs> the first class, we're, we're doing like an ab set and he squeezes us all up everybody side by side and he's like you're going to start doing crunches and there was like 12 of us in the class and he's like now i'm going to run across your stomach during the crunch. i'm like what oh, man, are you kidding me so we're doing these crunches and then every like 10 seconds he would run across everybody's stomach and then run back the other side and then run back again and you just had to stay strong and i was like oh my god this guy's a beast yeah <laughs> um and so he eventually had some things go on where he just decided to stay in Australia and he started his school in like 2001-2002 and I started training with him just after his first Batizado would happen so like late 2002 I'd had um, I'd been training with him while he was at the other school and then again like my uh, 
ex-partner and the, the mother of my first two kids, they kind of had a little bit of an intervention and they were like, you've got to stop training. You need to be here for your kids and all this kind of stuff. It was, it was very odd. So I'd, I'd had like another like eight months off. And then when he started his own school, my all my friends from that school had gone to join him. And they were like, dude, you got to come and train. <laughs> so I started training with him uh, five days a week, six days, because most of the times he'd have a Saturday class. Nice. Um, and, and I was driving like... 300 k's a, a, a week just to get to his classes because I wasn't living too close and Monday I would drive to the east side of town and then Tuesday I would drive to the west side of town where he had class and then Wednesday I would drive to the north side of town <laughs> and then back and forth and so I was literally driving all, all the over city to get every so I could with this guy yeah, yeah. Um, and so uh, in about 2004 he had to go home for a couple of months and he was like so I, I really want you to to look after this particular class this thursday night class and this friday night class um while i'm gone and i was like i'm really not good enough or ready enough to teach a group of people and he's like look i have to go home my mom's not well and i need i just need someone to cover the class for like a month that's that's like, hey, that can that can okay. feel like a big uh, yeah it's a big demand on you but at the same time it's an honorable request at the same time or like it's just yeah that that feeling of like he's putting my trust or putting his trust in me to to be able to carry this on that's huge yeah. that's awesome so uh, it was daunting uh, but I, I I took the challenge and I took the responsibility and and I taught I think he was ended up being gone for like two and a half months. And when he finally came back, he was like, I want you to teach today. I'm just going to sit and watch. I want to see how you went. And mm -hmm. I'm like, great. Because that's what I need. Extra pressure. <laughs> it's, 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 it's... Um, yeah. So he sat and watched. And I taught this class as technically and, and as well as I could and, and tried to keep it fun and tried to keep it, you know, all the things that we expect from a good Capoeira class. And uh, afterwards, he was like, that was really good. He's like, I like the way you teach i like the way you deliver my information he's like let me do you a deal he said uh if you come to my house in the afternoon before class we can train together we can work hard we can get some stuff done and then uh on this day and this day i want you to take over these two classes and i'll come and watch and i'll come and join in and, and i'm just going to mentor you in the, the teaching process and, and help you out so i was like wow what a great honor um and when i started visiting his house training it ended up being more than just capoeira he started teaching the batucada mm. and he started teaching other elements of the, the culture and the history and he's like these are really important things he's like if you're going to teach and you're a gringo he's like you're going to need to have as much diverse skill and understanding of the culture and the art as possible yeah and i was like okay uh so so yeah i did that for the next bunch of years in 2005, I think, we <laughs> were invited to a batizado in Indonesia. So we had a group in Indonesia that were training um, through Mestri's mentorship. Mm -hmm. And he would go over there every now and then. Uh, and once a year, they started having batizado. So myself, Professor Tamandawa, who, who wasn't a professor then, we were both um, estagiarios. We had a change in the belt systems in 2005. 2004 we went from the old cordel system to a, a new course system mm -hmm. 
So uh, I know the same kind of thing happened with Malaise here. They had changed in their systems as well. Um, so he, when we changed, myself and two other guys, he was like, I'm going to make you estagiarios. And we, I think I stayed that for like three or four years before um, before he finally made the change. So we went to Indonesia, and there I got to meet the Mestri, who was the founder of our group at that time, and another Mestri that had come from uh, Brazil, Mestri Coelho. He was an Angola Mestri, and that was my first real experience with Angola. Um, and then we came back, and 2006 was my first trip to Canada. I'd had my graduado corda by then, and I was coming to marry my wife, who I'd met in Australia, and she was a capoeirista, but her family is in Canada, and she was from Scarborough. She grew up in Scarborough. Um, so I came here to to have the wedding and get married, and I'm like, well, I absolutely need to go find a capoeira school to visit. <laughs> so I, uh, I discovered capoeira malaise and meshulua, and, and came to visit. Uh, my first class in Canada in 2006. And interestingly, I just noticed um, that one of the other capoeiristas, Tiana from Capoeira Camara, posted a, a blog article today about saying that Dover Courthouse. Yes, that was that was our our home, you know, for a long time. So yeah, I was sad to see that because even I have a memory like the first time I came to Canada and did a class. It was in that that space, mm-hmm. um, and I think it was just as as they were prepping for a batizado here. So I walked in, and Meshri is like smashing a tambour or a atabaki, playing this amazing like uh, candomblé, like Afro-Brazilian rhythm. Yeah. Oh, and 2006. Yeah, like we did. Mm-hmm. It was. I was like, wow, these guys are legit. Yeah, we put a lot of a lot of late nights into that batizado in prep work yeah a lot of, but, a lot so of i nice. think i've seen a video from that too it's really really good mm-hmm. uh so yeah I, I visited a couple of times when i was here then went back to australia kept training kept teaching uh, uh had a few of my own classes well and truly by that stage um in australia to get your like to be legally and legitimately teaching martial arts in australia you need to have uh, a level one sports coach qualification from the Australian Sports Commission. Okay. So there's a thing called the Martial Arts Industry Association in Australia that runs these courses and they have to qualify you and you have to send them videos of your teaching class and you have to do a course and you have like hours and hours of filling out forms and like <laughs> tests and questions and answers and stuff. It's actually a really good system. Um, so I did that in 2004 and then I ended up uh, having like quitting my day job and starting like a business through a government-funded um, program, so I was teaching uh, capoeira in like high schools and after-school activity kind of things, as well as running classes. Nice. Um, 2008, I came back to Canada again, did another um, another bunch of visits to Malaise, and again, you know, great classes, great experience, I have so much respect for Mr. Lua, uh, and then. In 2010, my wife and I had our second-born son, and we decided to move back to Canada because her family here is is quite large and supportive, and you know, like a, it takes a village to raise a child. So uh, we came here in 2010. I spent uh, a month in Brazil in September, October, October of 2010, uh, where I received my instructor's quarter and had my first experience in Brazil. One of the things I did is I spent uh, two weeks with uh, Mestri in Belo Horizonte, Mestri Binha, who was part of our group back then, 
working with like projects in school, teaching capoeira and using you know capoeira as a mechanism for empowerment with with kids who are underprivileged in Brazil. So it was amazing that I could demonstrate to them that Mestre Cicatriz had worked so hard in his capoeira, in his training, that he then got to travel the world and then he's positively influenced me and then I'm coming back as a gringo who has a reasonable amount of skill as an instructor um, and passion for the art and then I'm getting to share it back to them and, and show these kids that, you know, if you really apply yourself to something, there's an opportunity or there may be opportunities for you to, you know, make a better version of your, the possibilities that you have in your life. Absolutely, uh, yeah. And so when I came here, I decided, well, if I'm going to come here and we're going to stay, then I, I should start a class. Um, I'm a huge fan of my mystery. And, and as much as I was a fan of mystery Lua, uh, I'd done a bunch of classes in 2010 when it cut to like uh, the time for me to make that decision that I was going to start teaching. I, I had a sit down with mystery Lua and I was like, look, uh, I'm going to start a school and I'm going to start it way over in Scarborough. There's no other schools here in Scarborough. Um, <laughs> You know, I don't want to tread on anybody's toes, but as much as I love visiting and training, I'm going to have to stop regularly training here because I need to establish myself right. and my brand or, you know, our group and our brand. So one of the things when you come from another country and you start teaching a group is that you lose all the people that have helped you to get where you are because you're nothing without your training partners, right? Mm, that's true. Yeah. Right? They say iron sharpens iron. I think that's the term. Mm -hmm. So when I decided in March 2011 and I actually started running my own classes, then I knew I was going to have my game and my skills decrease a little because I'm not going to have that high level interaction. Right. Yeah. You don't have someone at your level to keep pushing. You are a little bit higher than you to kind of pull you a little bit at times. Yeah. Right. I get it. And so, yeah. So the only opportunity I had to keep any kind of uh, reflex in my game was to visit harders and visit groups and, and get out into the community and not only let them know that I'm here and I'm starting a school, but also get to play some games and get to have some fun and get to share uh, in the energy that already exists in the Canadian Toronto community. Yeah. So that was my saving grace. Like if I had moved to a town where there's no cup at all, it would have been even tougher. I can but yeah, we continued to teach uh, our classes in a couple of venues, had our first Batizada in 2012. In 2013, our mastery and his mystery had decided that we should uh, separate and, and, you know, politically sometimes there's issues and the evolution of the art happens sometimes between, uh, between the, the levels of, of the t stuff being taught. So, you know, from father to son and so on and so forth. So by the time Mestri Cicatriz's level of, of skill and understanding in Mestri Lothar, it was very, very different from the head Mestri who was running the school. And he, he wasn't choosing to evolve. He wanted to keep his ways. Um, so Mestri had just said, look, we're going to go start our own school. Um, so we started another group name, but I've always had the same lineage. 2013, on December 21, we started Kadara Capoeira. Mm -hmm. uh, when choosing a name, right, for a group, it's, it's hard. And to be honest, I think, like, Malaise is a 
great name because it has such a rich cultural history for those who understand what it means and, and who the Malays were. Um, so when we had to try to come up with a name and we're trying to think about artworks and designs, there's a Yoruba word, Yoruba people um, from Africa that were taken to Brazil. A Yoruba word for destiny is Kadara. Ah, okay. So Mestri had dedicated his life to this art and he thought that it was his now destiny to share his perspective and his version um, of how he sees capoeira and how he wants to empower and enrich the lives of other people. So Kadara it was, that's what we became. Nice, nice. Um, and then, you know, it's not easy to run a class. It's not easy to run an academy and stay consistent and and maintain class levels and, and maintain your energy in class. Mm. But by 2017, we had got to a point where I was like, you know what, I, I really want to have my, my own academy. I really want to have a space where we can do Capoeira. Yeah, we can I, do I really Capoeira. wanted to touch on this because that's a that's a big step for anybody who runs a Capoeira Academy, especially in North America, because it's it's still pretty niche, right? It's not like you were, um, there's karate on every corner, there's Taekwondo on every corner, right? Capoeira is very different, at least here in North America that way. So yeah, like, like what what was the breaking point? Where where was it where you, you decided it was it was time? Like in, in 2017, you took that decision, but like, what was the big the big driving force behind that? Um, well, even in 2016, it was times where I was thinking about it and looking at it. And then, you know, once you're getting a reasonable amount of class numbers, you start thinking and you're like, well, how much is the rent cost and what can I do? And this space that we took in this complex, I've been looking at this complex for a while because it's got a great location. It's got great accessibility and it's a little bit off the road. Mm -hmm. That makes it a little bit cheaper, but we're right by the 401 and Kennedy. We're right by the the Kennedy LRT system and the train so there's lots of accessibility not far from everything um, and after years of teaching in, in academies I spent a lot of time and you know, I've taught in karate schools and I, I taught a lot of other workshops and and things through other karate schools and connections I had and every time I go I'll be looking and I'll be like what do I like about this space what do I think works here what do I think doesn't work here and so I'd spent a long time taking little mental notes. Um, I, rem- I also have a personal trainer's qualification. And I remember in 2005, when I was doing the, you know, the introduction day where you talk about yourself, and one of the questions was like, where do you see yourself in 10 years? And I remember very vividly in 2005 saying, I want to have my own martial art academy. I can do PT, I can do other things there, but I want to have a martial art academy because I'm so passionate about Capoeira. So 2017 was two years late, but better late than that. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And then when we got the space, like I built the floor myself uh, you know, with the team and, and made sure that there's like a, a bounce to it. So, you know, and I, I really put a lot of time into it uh, and a lot of effort and the students like worked their butts off for a couple of months. The first class, there's a video, it's literally gray walls and it's a concrete floor with just jigsaw <laughs> mats like in the middle. And we're like, this is what we're working with, but it's our space. Yeah. Nobody tells us when we have to leave. Because I've taught in spaces where nine o'clock comes around and blick, 
somebody flicks the lights off in your academy or in the space you're renting. They're like, yeah. you're done now. Time's up. You're Time's paid. up. Yeah, your rent is up for now, right? You paid your hour. You got to get out. Yeah. And Kapoor is such a broad and diverse art form. There's so much to teach and to learn and to understand and embody and to practice. And you can't always get that in three one and a half hour sessions a week. No, no. So everybody wants to stick around and pack that extra game and spend that extra 10 minutes practicing the bidding bar and someone's got a question and someone's, you know, there's just too many reasons why it's nice to have your own space. And that was something I was really proud of until COVID came along. Yeah, I can imagine. Because there's a lot of overheads in running a space and it's the first time in three, nearly four years that I've been like, oh, I kind of get the the reason why people make the choice to be on the other side and to just rent a space and have a thing. It's a tough choice and it's a choice that I'm, I'm living with and I'm working with. And, you know, like I have the opportunity to sit here right now and, and, and have this conversation with you rather than being, you know, locked into a room in my house with the kids at the other side banging on the door. <laughs> So I love it and I appreciate it, you know, but uh, it's definitely a challenge. Yeah, I can imagine. I can imagine. I get it like for any of us because, I mean, we're we're all in the same boat. You know, everybody's working remotely now and teaching remotely and and uh, and a huge, a huge um, core component of the the heart of the class is lost right now right with without having everything you talked about you know being able to just linger and socialize after class or practice the music or even just have a class where everybody's feeling really good and you guys decide to have a hold in the class and it just keeps going and it just keeps going until people are like you know what i really should go home and go to bed <laughs> yeah right you yeah. know um, and especially like come, come event time right when you've got a, a friday night workshop yes and you're like okay so we go for an extra hour today it's all good. That's right. Nobody's trying to push it out. You're the you're the one in control of the lights at that point, right? You can decide, so which is fantastic. Yeah. That's awesome. I mean, I know it's tough right now, um, and I can't imagine um, because, like most people in my situation, you know, I have the I, I have my day job and that, and teaching here, I was renting hourly out of a studio, um, which all of that is is just been put on hold until who knows when, right? At this point, hopefully. You know, not much longer than September this year, if we're lucky. Um, but we'll see how that goes for everybody, right? And so we can get back to some some form of normalcy, um, which will be uh, it'll be so nice. I can only imagine what the first open holder in Toronto is going to be like when it actually happens. <laughs> We're all going to be so hungry. Yeah, <laughs> it's going to yeah. be. I think it's, it's going to be. Better run for a while. It's going to. Yeah, we're going to need like. Yeah, we're going to need a long time, probably four or five hours, and it's just going to go and go and go because people are going to be so hungry to play and uh, and so hyped up. Let's – um. you've talked a lot about your history and where you got started and, and how you started your academy in that. Um, with your time in Canada, um, do you think here in Canada that um, – has 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 Kapoor evolved in Canada in comparison to other places you've been since you spent your time here? Has there been like is there an influence on on 
Canadian perspective on capoeira and has it has it changed things a little bit here or is it molded capoeira in a little different way from your perspective? Mm, okay, so to give some context with my travels, uh, I've trained and played capoeira and taught in some of these places in Australia, in Indonesia, in Singapore. My first batizada was uh, Mestri Amen and Mestri Uzado. Mm -hmm. So I had an opportunity when I was working in the theme parks to uh, go and do some promotional work in Singapore. And so I, I looked up Mestri Uzado and did a couple of classes with him. Uh, it was great. And he's, he's a, a huge, important piece of the modern history of, of capoeira. Uh, I've played and trained in Hawaii. I've had four trips to Brazil now, I think, um, and in the US and here as well. I think Capoeira, she is an entity unto herself. She grows and she evolves through time and has for many hundreds of years. The influence on the art, I'm not sure if there's an influence on the art but there's definitely an influence or an, there's been an evolution in the art, but the influence, I'm not sure if, uh, if, if the art is being influenced by other places, then the teachers in those places are maybe not being true to the art. Does that make sense? No, that's a totally, because that's a very fair really statement. Important thing people say, right? That especially as a, as a, um, uh, an Australian guy teaching um, an African descended Brazilian art form in Canada. Like it's very <laughs> to, to preserve the art. And you'll hear Meshri Lua, and every time there's a big event, all the Meshris are like, it's, we need to preserve it. We sing in Portuguese, you know, classes are languages in Portuguese. We can't allow the art form to be diluted. Yeah, for sure. And I think that that's a really important thing. Uh, the art has absolutely evolved and there are elements in the beautiful thing about even the evolution and the history of, of Capoeira it started in Bahia in Sao Paulo in Recife and and in Rio and Each different place it grew. It was influenced a little. I saw a, a great workshop with um, one of the mysteries from Capoeira Brazil and he was saying that in Rio uh, Capoeira there was was influenced by savat, which is a French kickboxing form. Yep. Yep. Savat as an art form, it grew and evolved on the ships, and they would drink and then have kick fights, right? So a lot of great kicking, but they would hold on to the nets because it was they're on the boat, yeah, well, yeah, right. But so the kick points in savat are really high, and the hand striking points are not. But Capoeira was influenced in Rio because of so many ships coming to the dock, and I guess. Uh, and this was a, a mestre from Capoeira Brazil who said it was definitely influenced by Sabat. So it grew with a more martial element there. And maybe in other areas, I know in Hesifi, the cultural and the music in Bahia, those areas had a greater uh, tourist attraction in the earlier days. So Capoeira grew with and, and a greater number of uh, African people being there. So it grew with a greater influence from Candomblé, from other uh, African cultures, and grew with much more focus on music and the culture and the dance and the art. So uh, again, the influence 
happens and the evolution has happened in many different places for many different reasons. And, you know, there are some groups that have amazing music and there are some groups that have amazing floreos and there are some groups that have amazing uh, martial relevance. And slowly the groups have elements that permeate into other groups. So the art evolves in different places in di with different focuses. And if a particular focus is attractive enough or interesting enough or challenging enough by other groups with other focuses, the really good stuff becomes integrated and it grows and evolves. So that's why I say like she, as Capoeira, grows and evolves in her own way. But the important thing is to maintain the roots, where she comes from, why she exists. So um, the influence that you might say that comes with capoeira in other countries might be an influence on individual teachers and uh, individual uh, capoeiristas and artists who come here because they find that the culture is different. And as capoeiristas, they have to accept a situation and find a way to adapt. Right. Right. So the individuals might adapt uh, to <clears throat> the situation they're in, but I still don't think the art herself uh, is is being influenced by a particular country because of its culture. Yeah, we're so in this case, I guess another way of putting it is to say that at least here we're because we, I'm probably a good way to at least from my perspective is to say that like we are always talking about the roots. We're always reminding of each other of these things about um, its African roots, about the you know the Atlantic Passage and slavery and how it all um how all of that led to the the well the creation of capoeira and then its evolution over four or five hundred years now you know and i think because we are always engaging in that i think we it it we're reminding each other not to forget about these things um and then and the language perspective um i mean think at least for me, because it's been probably one of my biggest challenges over the past couple of years is, is taking on and learning and, uh, to speak Portuguese has, uh, you know, without it, I think a lot of people, um, if they don't take the time, there's a, there's a whole nother understanding and a whole other connection that's lost. If you don't have an understanding of the language and being able to know what's being sung and, and understand the message and even to take that message and, and understand that, you know, those words don't take them literally and try and look at it from a, um, you know, it's a, a metaphorical perspective, you know, on a situation, um, you know, and at least for me over the past couple of years, that has changed my perspective on things, at least, you know, um, you know, and when it comes to being on a hold or just listening to a song and now I, you know, this song now, I remember that one This good for this situation or you know, I like this song because this is one I might sing to a particular person as a message to them, you know, um, in, in one form or another. So, um, but I, the other part I was, uh, that the reason that question came up is um, I look back, you know, in the early days of, at least the early days for me in Capwood in Toronto uh, or in the GTA, and uh, like in 2003 when I started, uh, in 2004, like between basically, I would say 2003, 2006, um, the community here was different. We certainly didn't have as many academies in the GTA at the time, but the community was different. And 
um, after my hiatus, when I came back, you know, I, to, to see how things had changed and how the, the groups had really come together. Yeah, despite whatever flag they were, they were carrying, it didn't really make a difference, right? But in the GTA, how there was just this greater camaraderie between all the groups, you know, and, uh, and it really blew my mind, right? And I know there was a lot of work um, between you and Contre Messe Camara and Contre Messe Falcon, um, uh, Professor Camaleon, I think, had a hand in that as well. Uh, and Professor Sassi, of course, cannot forget about him. Um, you know, and um, I think there was that work that kind of um, changed how groups interacted a little bit, you know. Um, and I th that's where, at least in our area, um, you know, in, in our region, I think we, that's where I see kind of a, where how Capital has evolved, at least in Canada, from my perspective, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, no, it makes sense. So, so the art form not itself evolving, but the the scene. Yes, evolving. exactly. The, the community evolving. Yes. Uh, you know, um, it's a it's a thing where sometimes you know uh, we're bred to have certain beliefs from a young age, and then sometimes when that first generation reaches an age where they're like, let me just share some of my own thoughts and let me just see what everybody else thinks and maybe we can work together and we can put aside uh, previous beef and previous um, issues and and maybe you know like I said iron forge is iron the more people we play the bigger the hardest the yeah. more fun it is you know Mishri um, Tabora had this great conversation about you know you've got your community is like a park and you know everybody has their own little houses in this park area mm -hmm. and you got to tend to your house but you also have to look after the park in the middle where everybody comes together otherwise you know that you're going to have problems and and uh Meshri Lua is one of those people who from the beginning was always like I don't care let's just play let's get together and and let's have fun um and and he was so welcoming when I came he was like come in train and even when I had that conversation he was like you know what if you just want to train just train like that kind of open uh invitation and that kind of open mindset is a catalyst that that helps to set that course in action so even if uh you wanted to credit um Camaleon, Camarao, Falcon, Sassi and myself with being part of that uh change again it was it was definitely influenced by by Mestri Lua's ability to or desire to see uh more openness in others and more you know welcoming or having that welcoming vibe nice nice yeah no that's um it's a good point it's a very good point for sure for anyone who is considering going the path you've gone of starting your own academy what would be a piece of advice that you would give them just one thing that you would say was probably like uh, i know there's lots of advice to be given but what would be one thing that you would you would tell them so are we specifically asking about uh, a physical bricks and mortar academy or, or just a, a starting a class and a group um let's talk about the bricks and mortar aspect of it yeah okay that's that's it's something that comes with time like starting your own group and your own class is 
challenge enough, especially uh, when you're starting fresh and you're like, I'm just going to open up my space and I want to get all the new people and I want to do all this thing. Um, that's a lot of work and it's a lot of promotion and it's a lot of dedication and it's a lot of giving of yourself and hoping that the people who come through your doors feel the energy that you're giving, mm. receive the instruction in a way that's positive and empowering to them and enjoyable and fun and challenging. And then they want to come back and they want to keep coming back. Capoeira struggles with retention a little bit more, I think, than other arts um, because there's so many elements and there's so much that is required to be focused on by the student. I need to learn this music. I need to learn this um, these acrobatic movements. I need to learn these martial concepts i need to understand the culture and now i'm dealing with another language like, <laughs> like how much it's overwhelming it is it can be very overwhelming so, for a lot of people it could be quite whelming yes yeah um so it's it's important for us as a as a teacher to understand and appreciate that not everybody is going to want to be a master not everybody is going to want to be a teacher some people just want to come and have fun and sweat and train and you hope that in time that you can spark enough interest so that they want to dive into those areas on their own rather than being force fed yeah yeah um, and i think that's something that helio had also touched on mm -hmm. uh in the podcast i watched with him so that's it's valuable um and this is another thing where you know understanding the how the community evolves and how i was saying like when people come here to teach they have their culture and they have their understanding of what works in their country whether it's me and a Australia or whether it's somebody from Brazil and then you come here and you're like this is how I'm going to teach this is how it should be <laughs> and then the adaptability phase comes where we're like oh we need to make an adjustment here we need to make a change here um, the same thing happened with Mestre Cigatures in Australia he, he went through a, a journey of his own understanding how to make Capoeira relatable and how to make it achievable to people who quite often just wanted to get their weekend in yep. so if we get through all that and we can be open and we can be welcoming then when you're starting to think about finding a space you need to crunch your numbers and be really sure that you've got enough to keep the place open and then like you say day jobs are good mm. uh, there are some couple of mestries who are jujitsu black belts and have five other sets of skills that they can teach a variety of different classes and that allows them to appeal to a few different niches right Upward is very, still very new, and hopefully with Capoeira uh, in popular culture getting bigger and bigger, and you know that scenes in that new Warrior show that just came out with uh, yes. um and having Latif Crowder in the Mandalorian, maybe we get to see a few more Capoeira moves. I know there were a couple of there were a couple of Easters here working on uh, Titans that were teaching like Alba Cheetos and Macarios ah, for fire courage. Nice. I've seen, seen Capoeira in uh, Have Kids, right? So we watch a lot of Super <laughs> in, uh, in Stargirl. I've seen it in a bunch of different things. So people are seeing it as a physicality and need to understand it as in, in its context. But... Um, getting that space, knowing that you've got enough people to pay it. And then, yeah, if you have a day job, I had a great day job. I was working for the last seven years 
in high schools across the north of Toronto teaching women's self-defense and uh, anti-bullying conflict resolution courses. So uh, for the last seven years, uh, between two and 3,000 kids a year get to spend a week with uh, a couple of different groups and we run through all the physical self-defense concepts and theoretical self-defense concepts and then we give like affirmations and try to do things to with the concept of empowerment and it was an amazing day job and then COVID hit because a lot of that day job was paying bills here yes and then when COVID hit academies locked down schools are locked down I was like no what do I do now <laughs> but you know, we're hanging on. So, but having a day job because capoeira is not going to make you rich. You're not going to have. There are very few capoeiristas in the world that live solely off capoeira and uh, and are doing quite well, right? Um, so, you need to decide why you want to do this, whether it's an academy or whether it's just a class. Like, what's your reason? What's your motivation? Right. What's your passion? And you know, because I've I've seen, and it's, it breaks my heart. Some people teach because they want to be the teacher, because they want a position, because they want that notoriety, and they want to command that respect. Respect should be given, it should be earned. It should be earned, yes. And I think that it comes from your personality. So if if you want to teach just to be the teacher, look inside yourself. Then maybe having an academy is an experience you can't really dive into yeah that's that, that can be that can be a shallow pool right, right. yeah yeah especially again with couple and not having because you could open a muay thai school and start uh promoting a muay thai school and you're going to get people brazilian jiu-jitsu anything that's you know you might see in a ufc or an mma yes, event yeah you want to train capoeira doesn't have that uh, allure capoeira outside of brazil the diaspora of capoeira has always um drawn people who were interested in the art and the culture and the music and the movement, they didn't come to Capoeira because they want to fight. Right. If they want to fight, there's a hundred other karate, kickboxing, wrestling, uh, jiu-jitsu, Aikido, whatever you think works. <laughs> you um, know, I was thinking about that too, right? Like, is, and comparing, you know, not just Capoeira, but other, um, I would call them traditional martial arts, like, for me, it was Hungar Kung Fu growing up, you know, and um, and um, uh, we had, you know, I had a, I had a pretty, it was similar to you. It was kind of my home away from home as a teenager. You know, it was the place to go. Um, and but there's there's so many, I'll call them quote unquote martial arts academies out there now. But to me, they're not really martial arts. To me, they're just teaching fighting systems. They're not teaching martial arts. You know, and I, and I, the, the difference between the two is that connection that we try to maintain, you know, with the history, with the music, with the culture and all that, that makes it a martial art. There's that completeness to it. You know, it's not all scientific there. There's uh, a romantic, uh, artistic portion to it as well. That creates a balance in my mind, at least, you know, and, and, uh, and that's, it's different and we, you know, and it's, we need to be careful not to lose that. Absolutely. Hungar, eh? Yeah, um, yeah. Working stunt shows, one of my buddies, uh, Regine Burmeister, did Hungar and, and Wing Chun. And he, he told me, I think it was called the Kung Lik form. I don't know whether the names are the same, but it was fun. Um, 
Yeah, but that's that's a perfect example of a, a martial art, right? So I've always and and people give me slack for it because sometimes they don't want to be categorized in certain ways. Mm. But I, I say that you have martial arts, and then you have martial sports. Sometimes it was a martial art and has been evolved into a martial sport. Yeah. And you have fighting sports. Yes. And then you have combat systems. Which are, okay, well, probably like you're right. thinking more policing military type combat systems. Yeah. Yeah. Like, I'm going to kill you because you, you want to kill me. Right. right. My, my objectives and the, the set of outcomes that I'm looking for are very different in a combat system than they are in a fighting sport. For sure. Right. And the, the objectives are quite more brutal in a fighting sport than they would be in a in a, a martial sport. Ah, uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So then you've got martial arts. That's, that have a, a great... that's an excellent way to excellent way to break it down for sure. Well, that's yeah. a good perspective. So know, know where you want to be. Yes. Is is a good thing. And making sure that if that's where you want to be, that you you can uh, preserve and promote exactly that and not dilute it into something else. Yeah. Oh, that's good. That's good. Tell us about one of your most memorable or proudest memories that uh, you've had within your own space, within your academy. Within my own? Yeah. The day Mastery Cicatriz arrived here uh, for our Batizado in 2018, I think, was it? 17 or 18? 17, I think. And he walked in the door and he just looked around and I'm like trying to give him the whole, and here's the storage room. And look, this is where we keep the bike. And we put in the mirrors and we built the floor. Look, it's bouncy. And just the look on his face, like, you did it. Good for you. I'm really proud and I'm really impressed. And at that time, it was the first full-time academy for our group anywhere in the six countries that we existed. Nice. nice. So for him, he was like, one of my boys <laughs> He's really uh, putting the effort in. Now we have uh, two other ones in Australia that are full-time academies. Fantastic. Um, Professor Mandois and uh, Instructor de Trovan. So kudos to them. They're, they're doing wonderful work over there. Um, and it's funny because they're, you know, Tomandua and myself uh, and Serpench are, um, and Trovan are the old guard from our group back in Australia. And I think when you were talking to Pirata, he was like, you know, and same with, Contra Mr. Camaral, you know, saying like how many people from the old days are still around. We still have a good like six or seven guys who are, are from the, the first days with Nestri's classes still out there working, teaching and sharing um, and, and loving the art form. So uh, that's a, a tip that I had to Mestri for keeping us all empowered and motivated. Awesome. Um, you know, and preserving the art. Awesome. That's cool. Listen, I know it's getting late for both of us. I'm sure you want to get home to the kids. Well, they're probably all asleep by now, but yeah. <laughs> they should be, right? <laughs> awesome. Again, thank you for your time. It's really greatly appreciated. Um, learned a lot more about you. Uh, you know, um, you know, we've had many interactions. Um, yeah, I don't know what else to say other than a big thank you. It's a pleasure. Uh, again, I, I really like the work you're doing and you know uh these conversations should mimic the game of capoeira 
better. And the, as Kaporistas, we should be able to have the conversation go two ways. So I was going to ask, when did you start? What <laughs> I, I know that we don't have time for that now, but I want to hear your side of things. And I'm sure that your audience and your listeners are looking forward to hearing your perspective and getting to know you a little bit better as well. So make sure that uh, you find a good interviewer. I will have to, yeah. <laughs> I'll, I'll keep you on the list. I'll keep you on the list just in case. <laughs> awesome. Awesome. All right. Have a good night. Stay safe. And we'll talk to you soon. Awesome. Thank you again.